0: Uh, if you have a Bible this morning, turn to the obscure book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is in the middle of your Bible, middle of the Old Testament, right after Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. We'll be in chapter 3 this morning. As you're turning there, you might be familiar with the opening sequence that says this. Like sands to the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. That famous phrase was part of the opening sequence of the television soap opera, the NBC Daytime Soap, Days of Our Lives. And up until last summer, that show had aired nearly every single weekday since November 8th, 1965. That's 57 years and almost 14,000 episodes, of which I saw none. And so that, that soap opera followed the Brady and Horton families, according to Wikipedia, but was pulled from network broadcasting and is now sent exclusively online. So if you're missing the ins and outs in the town of Salem, you've got to go find the Peacock streaming service. And so that opening sequence of the show may be familiar to many of us, even those who have never watched the show. So the title sequence features the hourglass with the sand slowly trickling down. And that image is very familiar to most of us and even if we didn't care or know about the scandalous or salacious or controversial things that happened on that show, but that image of sand falling from the top to the bottom of an hourglass resonates with us. That image illustrates the brevity, the fluidity and the smallness of our lives here on the Earth. Like sands through the hourglass, our days trickle from top to bottom. And so as we celebrate the arrival of a new year, or if you celebrate the arrival of a birthday, we often take these opportunities to reflect on our lives, to consider each grain of sand that's flowing into and out of our days. So as we look to this new year, we, look, we may look with anticipation or joyful expectation. Some of you may be looking with apprehension and dread. Some of us may have simply just resigned ourselves and say, well, it's just another year, Same in, same out. It's the tedium of yet another year, the same routine coming for us yet again. Others may feel the increasing velocity of the sand as it flows outward. We may see that the sand that remains in the top of the hourglass is frightfully small compared to the pile that's accumulated in the bottom. However we view this coming year, we must all learn to face these days of our lives. There's a saying, a proverb, Which sounds like a blessing, but is really more of a curse. And it says this May you live in interesting times. And boy, have we had some interesting times of late. So the Bible speaks to us and instructs us how to live our days, whether they're interesting or boring or tedious or great or horrible. The Bible speaks to us how do we live these days of our lives? And so, as we look to the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, it gives us some instruction. The book of Ecclesiastes is often neglected. I doubt you've heard many sermons on Ecclesiastes. And it's a short Old Testament book that's somewhat strange and enigmatic. It often doesn't read or look like the other biblical books. It's pessimistic. It's often gloomy. It's morbid. It can be said of this book, Well, every party's got a pooper. And that's why we invited you. So the book of Ecclesiastes stands in contrast to the book of, say, Proverbs. Yet this book holds a great deal of wisdom as we stand on the cusp of a new year. As part of the Old Testament wisdom literature, it stands and serves as a wealth of practical wisdom that we need in order to live life here under the sun. And the preacher, the the author of this book, will use that phrase, under the sun, over and over and over again. And he does that to illustrate that we live life physically under the sun. He mostly writes from a perspective of a man on the ground, looking up. Where a lot of the times the Bible is written from the viewpoint of God, looking down. And so he's using this perspective of him being on the earth, looking up, trying to figure out what's going on. And he uses the expression, I saw, or I heard, or I did, rather than the Lord said, or the Lord did. So with this perspective, with this vantage point, he's going to see life as we often see it, on the earth, at ground level. And this vantage point this world to the preacher and sometimes to us doesn't make a lot of sense to the preacher life is short it's hard it's monotonous it's boring it's vanity vanity of vanities futile it's repetitive it's a grind it's often trivial i told you this book is really optimistic for a sunday morning new year's day the preacher says we live in the same old routines there's nothing new under the sun What goes around comes around. There's nothing new. Pleasures are enjoyable. Pleasures are fleeting. Nothing lasts forever. He will go on to say there's no real sense of justice. The righteous may suffer and the wicked may prosper. Whatever we gain in this life may be lost. Whatever we gain in this life is either going to go to the yard sale or to the garbage dump. In the end, the preacher says we all die. His refrain that it's all vanity, it's all meaningless, it's all futile, if I only see from the ground. But what the preacher is doing, he's trying to get us to look upwards. To see, yes, this life may not make sense. This life may be hard and difficult. This this life may have simple pleasures and times to enjoy, but the preacher doesn't leave his audience here under the sun. His goal is to lift us up, lift our eyes above the clouds, To escape the futility, to see the sovereign God who sits above the sun, who who rules with all providence and according to his plan and his timing. So the preacher's perspective and our perspective this morning often exposes the futility of this life under the sun in order to awaken us, to awaken within us a thirst for God And he thirsts for eternal life that comes above the sun. So this Godward perspective encourages us and teaches us how to live these lives right now. So despite the tedium, despite the hardships, despite the trials that we face, no matter what your football team did this past season, there's a new season coming. And there's new days ahead. There are pleasures and joys and successes alongside tedium and hardship and trials. The book of Ecclesiastes teaches us how to live these days well. So let's turn our attention now to chapter three. We'll start in verse one and read the first fifteen verses. So Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse one, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the preacher says this: For everything there is a season, and every and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. a time to weep and a time to laugh. a time to mourn and a time to dance. a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. a time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time of love. And a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that they should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. So what do these verses teach us about facing a new year? Well, the preacher here gives us three instructions on how to live our days in 2023 well. So first, he will teach us that we must understand the temporary seasons. We must understand the temporary seasons. And we're not talking about winter, spring, summer, fall, even though I think we've experienced most of those in the past week. So temporary seasons means you have two days of freezing cold and then two days of 65 degree weather, which is marvelous. But what he's teaching us is the seasons of life, the patterns and periods that flow into and out of our lives, the daily routines that come and go. And he illustrates this in the first eight verses. And if you were a child of the 60s or 70s, you may remember the birds. Not the birds in the tree, but the birds with the guitars singing for every Uh, season turn 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 and they sing these verses that come from the book of ecclesiastes we need to interpret these seasons rightly and so he's offering here 14 couplets 28 phrases that represent the comprehensive whole of life Look, at your speech or silence your time for war or time for peace, the range of emotions, grief and celebration, mourning and dancing, and then the beginning and the end, right in verse 2, a time to be born and a time to die. So from beginning to end, he's incorporating all of life in these eight verses. And he's teaching us several things about the temporary season of our life. So first, he's teaching us, we must understand that this life is varied. It's different. So he gives 28 examples of good and bad, up and down, 28 or 14 positives, 14 negatives, the delights and disquiets, the desirable and the despised. And we're all thrown all of these at some point in our life. We're all face these scenarios and there's a normal rhythm, an ebb and flow to our lives. And we need to learn to interpret these seasons rightly. What kind of situation is this? How do I behave in this moment? Part of growing up and maturing is, you know, kind of how to read the room, how to read the season of what's going on and act appropriately. And so in their day, their agricultural day, they had to go with the seasons. You don't plant crops in February. You don't rake leaves in June. And so he's saying you've got to learn how to navigate the seasons. You don't wear socks or shorts and flip-flops in two-degree weather. You don't take a parka to a tropical beach. And so in the new year, we have to answer, what season am I facing? Is this a time to mourn or time to dance? Is this a year to pursue a new adventure or to close down an old one? Should we buy that new house to remodel the one we have? Is it time to speed up or to slow down, to build up or to tear down? He's saying this life is varied. Learn how to navigate the seasons well. And not only that this life is varied, he's also teaching us that this life is temporary. Our lives here under the sun are mortal and fleeting. They're governed by time. And the preacher's search in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's searching for meaning and satisfaction. And he finds that all is vanity, all is futile here under the sun. Why? Because nothing lasts forever. It all comes to an end. Whatever we have gained is for naught. We can't take it with us when we go. And so our neighbors in prevailing culture, they get this idea. They resonate with this understanding this life is all we have, they think. And so they will say, the non-believers, the ones who do not trust God, the ones who live their life only under the sun, they say, well, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The preacher, along with many of our days, seek out every opportunity for pleasure. They pour themselves into work to gain wealth. They'll go after religion. They are trying to find ultimate satisfaction. We all are trying to find fulfillment in our lives, but the preacher says nothing on this earth will bring you that pleasure because it is temporary. How many of us can relate to that feeling? What is that pursuit What is that resolution that you are making for 2023 that you are trusting in to bring you pleasure and fulfillment? Every pursuit of things on this earth failed the preacher and will betray us as well. There's a reason for this. In light of the temporary seasons of life, we all long for something more. Look down in verse 11. The preacher says, Also he, God, has put eternity into man's heart. Within our human nature, God has placed a desire for something more, for something that lasts, something permanent, eternity. We long for something greater, better, beyond all of this. A desire for a world not our own, for something greater, deeper, something to be gained. C.S. Lewis spoke to this, and he says it well. Here's his quote. He says, "...if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy..." The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures can satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, only to arouse it and suggest the real thing. He will go on to say that we live our lives pursuing the scent of a flower we have never found. We're looking for an echo of a tune that we have not heard, news from a country that we have never visited. The preacher and Lewis and Christians throughout the ages says there's always something more. We live our life under the sun, seeking all these pleasures, all this pursuit, all this wealth, all this work, but it all comes to an end. So the preacher says there's something beyond the sun. There's something above the sun that we must seek. We must go after because we live in time, and so the preacher is saying we must embrace our temporary moment, understand that this life is varied and temporary but also remember and live life because we know it is going to end. We always live memento mori, remembering death, helping us to live our lives well. Knowing that this life comes to an end teaches us to live with wisdom. And this is what we read at the beginning of our service in Psalm chapter 90. Here it is again. Moses says this, Psalm 90 verse 9, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or by, even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. He will conclude that section with this instruction. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And we'll expand this more in just a moment, but we have to know that we're not meant to live just for this moment. We're meant to live for eternity. Because knowing that we will one day die helps us to live these days well. We must make the most of what God has given us to do. And so life under the sun is varied. It is temporary. But lastly, life under the sun is often confusing. Can you relate to that? The life is sometimes just doesn't make any sense. Because we only have this limited perspective. We do not have God's perspective. We cannot know everything. We don't know how or why the world works in the way it does sometimes. Why did this happen and not that? Why did they get that lot in life and I got this one? Why do those people prosper and others suffer? You can probably write to this when you go to your child after they've done something foolish. Why did you do that? Inevitably, the answer is... I don't know, and neither do you. And so there's mysteries in this life that we can't explain. And so there are mysteries that I see even in this room. Like, how can so many goofy, clueless, unattractive men be married to such lovely, kind, and beautiful women? I ask myself that every morning in the mirror. It doesn't make any sense. It's beyond finding out. It's a mystery left to God alone. And so life under the sun is often confusing. And so look in verse 11 again. Also he is put into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And so the preacher's saying that life doesn't make any sense. And more than that, we have no idea how or why God acts in the way he does. God will give us his revelation, but it, that revelation is only a sliver of what he is doing. We cannot know who he is and what he is up to unless he tells us. God has revealed so much about himself, but there's an infinite amount of information and knowledge that we do not have because he has not shared it with us. The preacher says in verse 11, he can't find it out. We're always, as a human species, searching for knowledge, searching for wisdom, searching for understanding. But God says you can't figure all of that out. He will expand this thought in chapter 8. Look on the next slide. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. For he, that's man, for man does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So as humans... We have harnessed the power of the quantum realm. That's what runs this thing. But we have no idea how a particle can be in two places at the same time. We can image the brain and observe what's going on, but we have no idea how the mind fully works. Despite all the advantages of our technology, we still don't know the end from the beginning. We do not know how this life works because it's often confusing confusing because it's hidden from us. We may seek to know, seek to understand, seek to explain it, but we can't do it. And so the preacher is saying that this life often doesn't make sense, so it's teaching us not to rely on ourselves. Because we, in our finitude, in our temporariness, we want to have all the answers. Why do we want that? Because we, as humans, want to be God. We want to know everything. But God has not allowed us to do that because we are creatures. He is the creator. We're not meant to know everything in this life. We're only meant to know what God has revealed to us and to trust Him for the rest. So the preacher is telling us how to evaluate the temporary seasons we live in, to understand what's going on, to live appropriately, and to live humbly, to live wisely in this temporary moment because we live in the light of eternity. He's teaching us sometimes we must simply wait quietly, for our lives to play out as we trust. Not on our own wisdom, not on our own strength, not on our own abilities, but we must trust in the permanent sovereign God who rules and reigns above the sun. So the preacher is lifting our eyes to understand these temporary seasons, but to lift our eyes to number two, trust the permanent sovereign. We live in a temporary season that is run and governed by a permanent sovereign. When I was in elementary school, one of my teachers had a bulletin board that said, change is the only constant. And to a second grader, that was really strange. Change is the only constant? But now, living life a few years more than second grade, I understand that that is very true on the earth. But in an ultimate, absolute sense, that's not true. Change is always constant from our perspective, but there is someone who remains the same, and that's God himself. The preacher will point to that in verse 14. The preacher says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear Him. So what the preacher is teaching us to do is to trust God's permanence. And there's several things about God's permanence and His sovereignty that He wants us to understand. First, He's teaching us to trust and have faith in God's overpowering, Providence. In God's overpowering providence, with all the changes, with all the variety, with all the cycles of this temporary life, there is one who stays constant through it all. There's one who is in control, who's maintaining sovereign control over everything in this entire universe and everything in your life. There's nothing outside of his dominion. There's not one rogue electron or maverick molecule in the universe. His overarching power and control controls everything to the uttermost ends of our galaxy and universe and controls everything that happens in your life as well. The preacher is saying that we don't know what's going to come tomorrow or next week or the next year, but he's saying there is one who does. He's teaching us to trust not in our underwhelming perspective, but in God's overpowering providence. But what is providence? So in the 1600s, some guys got together and put together the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a series of questions and answers. And they answer this in this way: He says, "What is providence?" Their answer to this is very intriguing. They say this: Providence is the Almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds, as with His hand, heaven and earth, all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought. Fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things come to us not by chance, but by the Father's hand. So this definition says that providence is his almighty and ever-present power of God to control everything that happens in our lives and in this universe. Meaning God is not taken by surprise. God is not reactive. He knows what's coming because he's declared the beginning from the the end from the beginning. What he does endures forever. Nothing is added to it. Nothing is taken away. So no matter what happens in our lives this coming year, it's not outside God's command and control. If you get a promotion or you're laid off, if you build a house or your burns down, if Tennessee football lives up to its expectations or it flounders again, if you have a new baby or if you lose a spouse, if our church grows and flourishes or shrinks and fades, God is in control of all of these things. We know fully and all too well that life most of the time is outside of our control. But we long for and need someone to be in control of all of this. Because from our perspective, it it often looks like chaos out there. In the world and in our own lives, things that seem out of control. So we must be thankful that there is one who is powerful enough And good and gracious enough to oversee it all. Whatever has been, he has done it. Whatever will be, his work endures forever. Nothing is arbitrary, nothing is out of place. His character and his control bring us comfort because we know in his providence he cares for us and is working out the best for his people. This should humble us. We are not in control. We should frequently relinquish those rights and declare that it's out of my hands. And we trust God with it. But this truth should also comfort us. We're not in control. Knowing that God is the one who's who's sovereign and keeps everything running. Think about this Did you um, determine when you were going to be born? Did you determine that you would wake up this morning? Did you determine that there would be breath moving in your lungs and out of your lungs? Oxygen turned into carbon dioxide. Your heart continues to beat the synapses in your brain continue to fire, the fact that there's fluid in your eyes that you could actually open them, or if you look outside, that, that gravity still exists. God is running all of this. He is in control, sovereignly, providentially, caring for His creation because it's all intended for us to come to put our permanent trust in Him. This truth should push us to the ground, cause our hearts to erupt and surrender And worship. So the preacher here is teaching us to trust God's sovereignty, to trust his providence. But not only trust his overwhelming providence, but to trust his overarching plan. It's one thing to know, yes, God is in control of every minute detail of this life, but it's even more assuring to know that he has a plan. He's not just arbitrarily going, yeah, we'll do this, yeah, we'll do this, and we'll change that, We'll, we'll move this here. He's not reacting to anything, he's moving according to a plan and a purpose. Everything in your life is an end goal. So God's plan, ultimately, God's plan is to bring glory to His name through the work of Christ by saving, sanctifying, and securing a people that are holy and happy in Him. Let me say that again. God's plan is to bring glory to His name through the work of Jesus Christ by saving, sanctifying, and securing a people that are holy and happy in Him. This is God's plan to bring glory to himself through a people who are holy and happy in him. God is working and designed good for his people, even through hardship, even through trial, even through suffering. His goal is the salvation of his church. We see this mentioned in the book of Genesis through the mouth of Joseph. Joseph, being thrown into slavery, thrown into prison, is faced with his brothers again. And he's thinking, or the brothers are thinking, oh, Joseph's going to kill us now. But here's what Joseph says: as for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that, to bring about that may people, many people, should be kept alive as they are today. God is working a plan to save a people. But notice that our definition here works through the work of Jesus. The story of Jesus, the story of the gospel is at the center of God's plan. Everything. And especially the evil poured out on Jesus himself was done according to God's premeditated and preordained plan. The apostles speak to this in the book of Acts. Hear this from Acts 2 and Acts 4. Peter speaking, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. In chapter 4, they will say, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the most evil, most wicked, and most vile actions that occurred in all of history were ordained by God to bring about the death and resurrection of His Son. The Lord is orchestrating His murder and the resurrection according to His plan and His purposes to bring a people to salvation. Unless we think this is some kind of theoretical theology, yet God works in the big picture. God doesn't care about the little details of my life. We have to understand that God's plan works in our hearts and our lives just as well. He is looking to make us holy and happy in Him through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The same plan that brings Jesus out from the grave brings you out of the grave and into glory. We know this because Paul tells us in Romans 8, these very familiar verses. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So you see, God is working all things, good, bad, random, tedious, routine, extraordinary, all things to conform us to the image of Jesus, to bring us holy and happy to Him. God is working all these things that we can't understand to bring us to Himself. And so I don't know if you've ever seen one of the tapestries that that hang on a wall or a big carpet and has kind of the scene out there. And so you have this beautiful scene on the front side. You have this epic battle or whatever going on, but then you turn that tapestry over and it's just like this web of thread. No one takes that tapestry and puts the back out for everybody to see. Why? Because it doesn't make any sense. And it's often ugly. It's just this kind of tangle of yarn and all these colors just kind of mixed together. But then you turn that tapestry around and there's this beautiful picture that makes sense. Often we see our lives on the back side of the tapestry going, what's going on here? All these random threads kind of being put together. But then if we turn around and see it from God's perspective, God is weaving this epic and beautiful tapestry of our life. It's not finished yet. But God is finishing us. And notice that every chain in that link, every link in that chain of Romans 8 is bringing us to glory, bringing us to himself. God's plan is working for us, in us he's providentially caring for us and he's working according to his timetable and so we often say that God is an on-time God what do we mean by that the word here for time in the in the Septuagint is not the word we usually use for time like chronological time it's a special word that means a, an, an appointed event an opportunity so we could say ah it's eleven forty. That's a chronological time, or it's lunchtime, or it's time for this guy to finish, or it's time to go. You know, those kind of times. It's, uh, it's noon, or it's game time. So verse 11 is using the special word kairos for time, an appointed time, appointed opportunity, meaning that God is working from the beginning to the end. From the start of creation to the conclusion, God has been at work preparing everything in its time. There's nothing out of place. There's nothing outside of His control. Notice in verse 11, He also says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. There's the same word here, kairos. The word is beautiful means appropriate. Not that everything is alluring or attractive, but nothing is out of place. Not everything is where it's supposed to be. We see this use of God's time even in the work and life of Jesus. We read this verse during our worship set. But when the fullness of time has come, Paul says in Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Jesus, when He comes on the scene in Mark, says the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And one of my favorite phrases in all of the Bible is here in Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time... Christ died for the ungodly. God is working everything according to his timetable with Jesus being at the center of that plan. And so there is an appropriate time for everything God does. Nothing is late, nothing is early. It may not seem that way or look that way from our perspective, but God is working everything according to his timetable. And we take comfort and joy and hope in that. God is never running behind trying to fix a mistake or catch up with some random particle or person. It's all working perfectly according to His plan. And we trust Him because He's permanent, and He's good, and He's gracious. So what does that mean? How do we live this life at the precipice of a new year? And so we understand the temporary seasons. We trust in His permanent sovereignty. But lastly, we must embrace our present situation. We must embrace the time that God has given us right now. How do we do that? How do we live? We live in fear and holiness and obedience. So the preacher here in verse 14 gives us instruction. So I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken away from it. God has done it. Here's why. So that people may fear him. This is not a trembly or scared fear that God's going to like come smash us in the next few days. No, this one is a fear of reverence and awe. It's knowing that we are the creature. He is the creator. It's knowing that we're not in sovereign control, but he is. He's the one who wakes us up. He's the one who keeps us going. As we've seen before that we don't have sovereign control over much, if anything, in our own life. Think of the rebuke that Jesus gave to the rich man in his parable. The rich man had built up his wealth and his empire, and his barns were overflowing. The rich man says, What am I going to do with all this wealth? Well, I'll tear down my small barns and build some bigger ones. But God intervenes in that man's life and demands everything from him that night. We don't have control over our life like we sometimes think. We make our plans, but God brings it to pass. Martin Luther says this this is what it looks like to fear God. What does it mean to fear God? To have God in view, to know that he looks at all of our works, and to fear God means to acknowledge him as the author of all things. Fearing God is saying, God, I'm out of control. You are. Everything that I have is now yours. I fear the one who puts breath in my lungs, who causes my heart to beat, my eyes to open. The Lord is the one who is to be trusted, because he is good. He's the only one to follow, because he's the only one who can bring us salvation, who can bring us eternity. He alone has the ability and determination to actually save us from our miraculous and miserable experience on this planet. God is good, and he cares for us. This is what the preacher is aiming at, to direct our mind, direct our eyes off the earth, upward, and look to God in his heaven, who sits above the sun, the one who's working his plan according to his timetable. We read that definition of providence earlier. I don't know if you caught it, but in that definition, there were two mentions of God's hand in the world. God is not one who just kind of builds a universe, sets it spinning, and walks away to go do something else. No, in his providence, he is working. His hands are in our lives. It says God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth, all creatures. Then at the end, he says, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by the Father's hand. God is giving us by his fatherly hand, good things. This is an encouragement. This is a comfort to us. Alistair Begg says, God does, not have any, God does not have any abandoned projects or forsaken children. How comforting is that for us right now? That God will not abandon us and he will not forsake us. And so we are to fear God, to trust him. And as we do, the, the preacher gives us Uh, an an indication, an instruction that's kind of strange. Look in verse 12 and 13. He's teaching us to value the life that God has given us. In verse 12, he says, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And the pagan and the skeptic may look at this verse and think, This is God's gift. This is all we get. Just to be fruitful and joyful at what we do, that we eat and we drink, this is is all we get. But the believer looks at this and says, Thank you. This is God's gift to me. I'm grateful. Ordinary eating, drinking, pleasure, and fun are all a gift from God. And the preacher is telling us to enjoy those things and to give thanks back to God. Not to live our lives built around pleasure, not to seek the gifts as a substitute for the giver, but to live under God's providence, to be thankful for what he's given to us. So the preacher is giving us license to go have that extra scoop of ice cream, to go take that vacation. You're going to die anyway. So eat the extra calories and enjoy the islands if you can. Enjoy the simple pleasures that God has given to us. That's what the preacher is saying. I think sometimes we're often too harsh on ourselves, but whether it's taking a long walk, enjoying a sunset, traveling across Europe, you name it. The Lord, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He has given it to us as a gift. So the preacher is saying, value the life he's given to us and be thankful. Don't worry, don't fret it away. Value it and enjoy it. And so we are to value the life that we've been giving. But this doesn't mean that we just give ourselves away to pleasure and to hedonistic uh, adventures. He's like, you don't just live it up. But he's also saying the way we embrace the present situation is to engage the culture around us. God doesn't want us to waste our time. And that was the point of praying as we did at the middle of our service. To pray that we would make the most of our days. Here again, the instructions from Paul. In Colossians, walk with wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Ephesians, look carefully how you walk, not as wise, but as unwise, making the best use of the time. So God has given us and placed us here for a reason, at this moment, for for a purpose. And our time and our generation has some challenges and struggles that many generations might not have faced before. But God has placed us at such a time as this to engage the culture around us for the advancement of His kingdom. To not sit around for some other time, for a better time, to wait our days in a cave someplace, but to counter and engage our culture where he has placed us and when he has done so. So we're not privy to God's timing. God has put us here for a reason, to go out, to spread the gospel, to live as people of the light. Not to engage in the things of this world, but to enjoy the life he's given us, to give thanks to God and to engage his World with the gospel. So Jesus instructs his disciples right before his ascension. The disciples ask him a strange question. So when they had come together, the disciples asked him, Lord, will it you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They're wanting Jesus to come and to set eternity right then and there. But Jesus says to them, It's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you shall be witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He's saying that the eternity is not coming now. You have now the time to work, to engage the culture, to enjoy your life, and to trust God in his time. The plan of God has not changed from the beginning. It will not change until the end. He's not shifted direction mid-flight. And so we, like the men of Issachar in First Chronicles, should rise up, understand the times, and know what we should do. We know the times that we live in. We understand the season that God has placed us in. And we rely on God's plan to come to fulfillment and plan through us and in us. And so we rise with fearlessness and reckless abandonment. Because, remember, this time is temporary. We're all going to die, right? Maybe not this year. Maybe not next. But we should all live as dead men and women. Not for ourselves. We should live in the service of God. The days of our life are moving through the hourglass. How will you use them? Some of them may be moving faster than others. Do we live these lives in pursuit of temporal pleasure or wealth or fame or comfort? Or do we trust and leverage our lives and put our whole faith and trust and life and body and soul into the care of Christ who cares for us who holds us with his fatherly hand. So give the remaining lives, uh, days of our lives to God. He will take care of us. His plans for our lives will come to fruition. Jesus has died and rose again to bring us this life, guaranteeing that the sands in your hourglass will not count for nothing. They will count for something. They will count to build the kingdom of God. And we look forward to the day and we will have no more need for an hourglass. So as we give these days of our lives to God, we find pleasure and joy in the temple season of life here on this earth. But We will see that time absorbed into eternity in the light of a new earth when the sands of our hourglass finally run out. Let's pray.